Now we get the show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. government. The government is not us. This is the Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. On this, the 15th of October. Streaming live on Alternative Internet Radio. Coming at you from Mega City 3. Man. We got quite a bit of news on deck. Interesting article on deck. A bit of a topic for uh, what's not going to be the second half of the show. It'll be more like the last uh, quarter or so. If even that, it could end up being very, very short. It all just kind of depends. A little bit of Epstein news today, if you're interested in that. Streaming early today, because... Boy, do I have some shit to do this evening. <laughs> so, we'll see how that goes. Let us do what we do. Let's jump right into the interesting article for today. We have an article from The Federalist, who I don't generally go to, but Michael Malice wrote a piece in The Federalist today, actually, that I think is very interesting. How Marianne Williamson was force-fed the red pill. A rare and special joy is watching a left-winger get red-pilled in real time, in public, right before all our eyes. This seems to be the case with Marianne Williamson. I, I'm, I'm, I love Michael Malice's take on the red pill, and so I would like to... Uh, well, let's just get right into it from the interesting article for today. The term red-pilling is often bandied about on social media frequently by people who have no idea what it means or take it to mean red in the sense of Republican red states. The concept comes from the documentary The Matrix, and is defined in my book as, quote, demonstrating to someone that what is presented as fact by the corporate press and entertainment industries is only, at best, a shadow of what is real. That this supposed reality is in fact a carefully constructed narrative intentionally designed to keep someone, uh, to keep some very unpleasant people in power and to keep everyone else tame and submissive. Given the overwhelmingly hard-left agenda within corporate media, red-pilling far more frequently occurs on the right hand of the political spectrum. Yet there are plenty of red-pilled leftists as well, voiced like Green, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy, who have no problem slamming outlets like the New York Times for what can charitably be described as malfeasance. A rare and special joy is watching a left-winger get red-pilled in real time, in public, right before all our eyes. This seems to be the case with quixotic Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Hallowed be her name. 
this story basically talks about how Marion Williamson was hot mic'd. I believe on Fox she was hot mic'd, and she was talking about how the um, the left is mean to her. Very mean to her. She only gets really fair coverage from the right. And she was upset about this fact. And she was talking about how the, the, the people on the right are nicer to her than the people on the left. The people on the left fucking hate her. And they make it very clear. They're very unfair to her. And the people on the right are not. They tend to, to uh, if not take her seriously, I'm not sure if anybody takes her particularly seriously, except for me, Marianne Williamson 2020. Um, I'm not sure if anybody really takes her seriously in the media, but she's treated more fairly on right-wing outlets, and she pointed this out. She pointed this out on, uh, she got hot-miked on, uh, Fox News, and this made its way around. This story basically talks about that and what that means for her. Um, it is on The Federalist. It's an interesting article, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just, just kind of reading the introduction to it. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Go give it a read. I think it's very, very interesting. I love Michael Malice's writing, and I think he's dead on on his take on the red pill and how, how this actually works in, in the real world. Um, this I thought was funny. This isn't really news. I just thought it was funny. I watched the uh, the entire equality, not the entire thing. I I kind of checked out there toward the end, but most of the equality town hall on CNN this past week. I watch I watched uh, most of that. I live tweeted it. It was it was pretty funny for a lot of it. A couple of things were a bit disturbing. Um, but I thought this was interesting. This is from townhall.com. Uh, posted on October 11th by Julio Rosas. CNN came in last for ratings during their entire LGBTQ town hall. Uh, CNN came in dead last for ratings during their almost five-hour equality town hall event with the Democratic presidential candidates on Thursday. Fox News came in first, and MSNBC was in second during the same time period. Fox News was the most-watched cable news network in primetime in, both, in uh, both total viewers and the 24-54 to 54 age demographic, according to early Nielsen Media Research. Fox News was in first place for the entirety of CNN's nearly five-hour-long town hall from 7.30 uh, to 12 a.m. by averaging 37 million viewers and a bunch of numbers. Uh, CNN was in last place, having an average of 1.1 million total viewers. While CNN aired their town hall, Fox News' evening pro program mainly consisted of President Trump's rally in Minneapolis, Minnesota. During CNN's event, trans activists interrupted the candidates and questioners multiple times. Uh, and, uh, that's all I'm going to say for that. But for all of, all the work that CNN's doing, trying to put on things to, to skim ratings and, and trying to, trying to make it work, they just can't make it work. Um, I, it was, it wasn't uninteresting to watch. Political theater's fascinating. I love watching political theater. Um, it was just, there was some shit <laughs> that was disturbing. Uh, mostly it was funny though. Uh, Joe Biden can't finish a sentence to save his life, and it made for some hilarious moments. Um, I, you've probably all already seen the clip already, but he starts talking to Anderson Cooper about how, uh, he says something like, you remember 15 years ago, Anderson, you and I were talking about in San Francisco how it was all gay bathhouses and sex all the time, and then he cuts off that sentence, and he addresses the audience. It's like, it's normalized now. Nobody gives it. The point he was making was that that was the kind of social... Uh, stigma attached to homosexuality at the time, and we now know that that's not true anymore. That's what he was getting at. That's what he wanted to say. 
But it ended up just sounding like he and Anderson spent a lot of time talking about how much sex happened in gay bathhouses about 15 years ago. Um, very, very funny moments all throughout the whole thing. Uh, and we have a debate tonight, actually, I believe. Um, I may or may not try to watch that. Another, uh, another story, this from The Verge, written by Elizabeth Lopato. And this one is uh, a bit disturbing. This is Epstein News. Bill Gates had a closer relationship with Jeffrey Epstein than he admitted, the New York Times reports. Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft and chairman of its board until 2014, was among the powerful men who spent a meaningful amount of time with sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, according to reporting from the New York Times. Employees of Gates' namesake foundation reportedly also met with Epstein in multiple visits to the disgraced financier's mansion. Previously, Gates had told the Wall Street Journal that he didn't have a, quote, business relationship or friendship with Epstein. Uh, quote, I met him, Gates told the journal on September 10th. Quote, I didn't have any business relationship or friendship with him. I didn't go to New Mexico or Florida or Palm Beach or any of that. There were people around him who were saying, hey, if you want to raise money for global health and get more philanthropy, he knows a lot of rich people, end quote. But in the New York Times article, a spokeswoman for Gates declined to say how many times the pair had met. The paper's reporting shows that Gates met with Epstein numerous times, that's in quotes, including at least three times at Epstein's townhouse. Quote, his lifestyle is very different and kind of intriguing, although it would not work for me, Gates wrote in a 2011 email to colleagues. His spokeswoman says he was, quote, referring only to the unique decor of the Epstein residence. <laughs> quote, Bill Gates regrets ever meeting with Epstein and recognizes it was an error in judgment to do so, his spokeswoman told the New York Times. Quote, Gates recognizes that, uh, that entertaining Epstein's ideas related to philanthropy gave Epstein an undeserved platform that was at odds with Gates' personal values and the values of his foundation. Oh, man. I, I'm going to stop there. Uh, that is just... No, actually, here's an interesting bit as well. Uh, in 2011, Gates instructed a team to meet Epstein at his townhouse to discuss philanthropic fundraising, the New York Times reports. Epstein told the people there that his conviction for soliciting prostitution from an underage girl was no worse than, quote, stealing a bagel, according to two people who were there. Look, I've never liked Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a guy who's had his fingers in private prisons. He's had his fingers in uh, in um, military contractors. He is a he is a war profiteer. Um, he profits off of caging uh, people generally. He's a, he's he's always. I've never liked the man. I've never liked him. This this just makes me feel all the more right for never having liked him. I talk sometimes about Skeevedar. This idea that 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 you can just kind of look somebody, look at somebody, and kind of you don't like them. And I've talked about it with relation to uh, old uh, old Stefan Molyneux. I've talked about it with relation to him. He always came off as skeevy to me. I never liked him. Never really liked his content. All the way back to when I was in high school, he was on YouTube. Never liked him because uh, he always came off as skeevy. And then we found in the last, uh, I guess year or so that yeah he's he's incredibly skeevy <laughs> so i don't know i tend to trust my instincts and and gates has always kind of set them off never liked them and uh well here you go here's all the more reason not to like him um i think we're gonna take this opportunity to do this so i was listening to no agenda show and we've talked about this serious stuff we're about to get into some real news so let's let's take just a moment here Adam Curry on the No Agenda show uh, went back and did a little bit of research in their clip archives uh, during the Obama administration. And all of this news about Syria and Donald Trump abandoning the Kurds to their fate 
or whatever uh, is being said about it. That's mostly what's being said about it. We can't do this! We can't leave the Kurds alone! We can't pull out of Syria! Well, we were never in Syria. Let's, let's, let's listen. This is about, this is about a five minute long clip, but I think it's worth listening to. I find it intriguing, very entertaining, and it's going to give a lot of context to this Syria thing that everybody seems to have fucking forgot about overnight. Uh, let's just listen to Adam Curry go off about this on the No Agenda Show, uh, a great show that I recommend to everyone. Uh, here we go, Adam Curry. About Syria. Why did it stop? It bothered me because this there is another go. huge issue that uh, the Washington establishment has. Most of the mainstream media, M5M, including Fox, it's like, oh my God, we can't do this. This is completely wrong. How could I do it? And, you know, we've been doing this show for a while, so, and I have a reasonable memory when it comes to things I've tangibly held in my hands, or I guess not completely tangibly, but I've, I've recorded clips, I've written the titles for clips, you know, you remember stuff after a while. And there was, and we followed this very closely, and there was a promise, and that's why I don't understand why people are talking about our troops Pulling our troops. We don't have troops in Syria. We do not have combat troops in Syria, better known as boots on the ground. I do not foresee a scenario in which boots on the ground in Syria, uh, American boots on the ground in Syria, would not only be good for America, uh, but also would be good for Syria. I will not put American boots on the ground in Syria. I will not pursue an open-ended action like Iraq or Afghanistan. With respect to the situation on the ground in Syria, uh, we will not be placing U.S. ground troops to try to control uh, uh, the areas that are part of the conflict inside of Syria. The resolution we've submitted today does not call for the deployment of U.S. ground combat forces to Iraq or Syria. So then, of course, we sent uh, troops to Syria, uh, but it wasn't really troops. It was uh, special advisors and the much-discussed Jim Acosta was in the press room making waves back in the day for uh, good old Josh there. Which is this president, this White House, the officials here at this White House repeatedly over and over again, made it clear to the American people that there would be no combat role for U.S. troops fighting ISIS. That appears to be changing. Not only is there this announcement that you're talking about today, which you say they won't be involved in a combat role, but you're not ruling out the possibility that they may be involved in some sort of combat operation. But on the Iraq side, you have Pentagon officials this week saying we're in combat. So I'm just, it would be great if we could just have a moment of clarity here and you could acknowledge that yes, this mission is changing. It is not what it was said it was going to be at the onset of this. I mean, I just think to say that it's clear. To say that, Jim, would only confuse the situation. The fact of the matter is the mission that the, the commander in chief has given our military personnel in Iraq and now and in Syria uh, is a train, advise, and assist mission. Train, advise, and assist. We've gone to great lengths to make clear 
that that is in no way diminishes the amount of risk that our men and women in uniform will be facing. We've also been quite clear that there actually have been situations where combat boots have been on the ground inside of Syria. We've been quite candid about that. The president ordered uh, a mission involving U.S. military personnel putting boots on the ground inside of Syria to try to rescue American hostages that had been taken by ISIL. That occurred more than more than a year ago. Ah, so, but still, there's no combat boots on the ground. Somehow we have thousands of troops' boots on the ground now that Trump, the horrible, horrible man, is taking away so the Kurds will get slaughtered. But we have no boots on the ground. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. Yes. No. Uh, it, yes. We have to go back to Admiral Kirby, who was answering questions from Matt Lee and Guyane ch 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 there was never this no boots on the ground. I don't know where this keeps coming from. I'm just curious if this is like part of some kind of devious grand strategy to say one thing and then do the complete opposite of it. I just, I don't see it that way. For months and months and months, the, the uh, mantra from the president and the, everyone else in the administration has been no boots on the ground. And no, now... That is not true. Oh, what? It's just not true, man. It is. What? It's just not true. It's true. No, it's not. All options are on the table except boots on the ground. That was the... That was the I never said that. But can the president send any number of special forces without calling them ground troops? They are not ground troops in the in the sense that they are not conventional ground troops conducting combat operations on their own. The special forces being sent to Syria are going to be engaged in combat. Their job would be in keeping with the original 50, which was advise and assist. There's no point in arguing the boots on the ground rhetoric. It's absolutely no point. I'm not disputing the fact that we have troops on the ground and they're wearing boots. There we go. Yes, now we got to the point. So I don't know why everyone's all up in arms. There's no troops there. There's only advise and assist. We've advised. We've assisted. We can step back now. People forget very quickly, but not your no agenda show. Oh, uh, yeah, there are not supposed to be any boots on the ground in Syria. So what? who are we pulling out? Everybody wants to talk about gaslighting the nation. Everybody wants to talk about Donald Trump that gaslighting everybody oh my god he's 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 making us all question our reality did you not hear that was all under the obama administration the obama administration speak spokespeople out there in the press room saying we did not say what we very clearly said matt lee uh, one of the greatest motherfuckers ever to be in a press pool by the way matt lee out there saying no here is the quote this is what we were told and the, the no, no, uh, we never said that. What are you talking about? We never, we never said that. You want to talk about gaslighting the fucking nation? There it is. Jesus Christ. And listening back to that stuff, it, 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 it sent me back in time almost. I listened, I've been listening to the No Agenda show for a lot of time, for a long time now. And they used to play, they, back during the Obama administration, when Matt Lee was in the press pool and all this stuff, they used to play these clips of Matt Lee just absolutely catching these motherfuckers. I wish Matt Lee was still doing that. He, he doesn't, he's just not there anymore. And it's sad because he was one of the best reporters ever to be in a press pool. Um, I, I just, I can't, I, 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 there's your fucking gaslighting. There's your gaslighting. Who are we pulling out? Who are we pulling out of Syria right now? Who's there? Because if they're combat forces, they're not supposed to be there in the first fucking place. So there you go. There's your answer to the Syria question. Are we leaving the Kurds to fend for themselves? They were supposed to be fending for themselves from the very fucking beginning. 
And if they weren't, that means we were lied to. And obviously, we were lied to. Moving on from the New York Times. Oh, I'm sorry. No, this is not from the New York Times. This is from Reason, talking about the New York Times. Written by Christian... Oh, man. Why Why do you have this last name, sir? Britschke? Britschke, I think, is the closest I'm going to be able to get. The New York Times wonders aloud if Tulsi Gabbard's anti-war, anti-establishment message makes her a stooge for Nazis and Russian bots. <laughs> Representative Tulsi Gabbard, d- d- Democrat Hawaii, is a weird person running a weird presidential campaign. That doesn't make her a stooge for Nazis or Russian intelligence. On Saturday, the New York Times published an article whose headline asks, What exactly is Tulsi Gabbard up to? Gabbard's brief flirtation with boycott in the upcoming Democratic debate, Lisa Lehrer writes, has, quote, some Democrats wondering what exactly she's up to in the race, while others worry about supportive signs from online bot activity in the Russian news media. Alt-right internet stars, white nationalists, libertarian activists, and some of the biggest boosters of Mr. Trump heap praise, heap praise on Ms. Gabbard, Mr. Trump, nice. Lehrer continues, Uh, They like the Hawaiian congresswoman's isolationist foreign policy views. They like her support for drug decriminalization. They like what she sees as censorship by big technology platforms. These are, of course, all stances that could appeal to progressive voters as well. To make the case that something sinister is afoot, the Times relies on a mix of thin evidence, guilt by association, and conspiratorial framing of actions that any single-issue-focused dark horse candidate is liable to do. That, particular, that is particularly true of the Russian support Gabbard is supposedly receiving. The alleged evidence for this includes the popularity of a hashtag Kamala Harris destroyed uh, that exploded on Twitter following Gabbard's criticism of Senator Kamala Harris during a July debate, which the Times says, quote, appeared to be amplified by a coordinated network of bot-like accounts. The article notes that, quote, no evidence of coordination between these networks and the campaign itself It doesn't mention that a Twitter investigation found no evidence of bot activity boosting the hashtag. A Wall Street Journal article that initially advanced that theory later had its headline watered down. Also cited as evidence was Russian, uh, 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 evidence of Russian support is data from the Allegiance for Securing Democracy, ASD, a project of the German Marshall Fund, which purportedly shows Gabbard getting a disproportionate amount of coverage from Russian state-sponsored media, given her low poll numbers. Quote, the Russian activity could be part of a longer-term effort to drive a wedge among Democrats, mused ASD director Laura Rosenberger in the Times article. Quote, this messaging has echoes of 2016. The ASD's Hamilton 2.0 dashboard, which tracks the coverage of Russian state-sponsored outlets like RT and Sputnik, reports that Gabbard has been mentioned in 33 articles since mid-June and on three TV broadcasts, two of which were about the Democratic debates as a whole. So a candidate focused on criticizing U.S. foreign policy is getting mentioned about every once every four days by outlets that also spend a lot of time criticizing U.S. foreign policy. That strikes me as falling short of a full-blown influence operation. The fact that Gabbard's polling poorly despite all that coverage from RT and Sputnik suggests this at worst, this suggests this is at worst a rather ineffectual conspiracy to disrupt and divide Democrats. There's a lot of nitpicking in the, uh, in the Times piece, too. It spends a lot of time on ex-KKK leader David Duke's endorsement of Gabbard and on neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin's evidence-free claims that his support was responsible for getting Gabbard over the donor threshold to qualify for the first two debates. This might, uh, this might be fair to mention if Gabbard, a stridently progressive congresswoman of color, had actually done anything to court the support of explicit right-wing racists, but she has done the opposite, forcibly denouncing Duke and white nationalism when asked. Lara notes her disavowal of Duke and then immediately implies that Gabbard is seeking support from people like him, 
Quote, but her frequent appearances on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show have buoyed her support in right-wing circles. Gabbard's criticism of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, gets the same treatment. The Times acknowledges a non-sinister explanation for Gabbard's stance while hinting that worse is afoot. Longshots like Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson have joined Gabbard in criticizing the DNC's criteria for getting into the debates. Senator Elizabeth Warren has gone so far as to say the 2016 Democratic primary was rigged in Hillary Clinton's favor. But when Gabbard says this sort of thing, Lara writes that it's, quote, an argument that reminds some Democrats of the narrative pushed by Russian actors during the 2016 presidential contest when an operation by Internet trolls worked to manipulate American public opinion. (laughs) It's true that no other Democratic candidates have volunteered to go on Tucker Carlson's show, although Carlson has praised Warren's economic program. But it shouldn't be surprising that Gabbard, with low poll numbers and a campaign that's focused as much on spreading her anti-interventionism message as it is about actually winning the nomination, would jump at an opportunity to go on primetime television for a sympathetic interview uh, about ending wars in the Middle East. A byproduct of running an anti-establishment campaign is that you end up criticizing people and institutions that various kooks and jerks also happen to hate. But there's a distinction between that and actively encouraging the support of those kooks and jerks. The media should be able to make this distinction, to criticize candidates' positions on their own terms, but Lehrer prefers to ignore Gabbard's arguments for a less interventionist foreign policy I guess that might get in the way of all those conspiratorial speculations. Um, I love how far down the conspiracy rabbit hole the left has gone in, in, since 2016, basically. Um, the left at this point is, has mainstreamed conspiracy theories that are as insane as shit Alex Jones says. Um, and I, I think it's amazing and awesome, frankly. I, I'm, I'm so happy that the left has lost their fucking minds. Um, because it makes it more fun for me, honestly. Um, and it gives me something to point to. It gives me something to point and laugh at. And I think that's, I mean, that's really what this is about. It's all theater. Politics is all theater. And it always has been and always will be theater. So, why not make it a comedy? From the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Twitter unintentionally used your phone number for targeted advertising. This is written by Janine Gebhardt. And Jacob Hoffman Andrews, published on the 9th of October. Stop us if you've heard this before. You give a tech company your personal information in order to use two-factor authentication and later find out that they were using that security information for targeted advertising. That's exactly what Twitter fessed up to yesterday in an understated blog post. The company's been taking email addresses and phone numbers that users provided for, quote, safety and security purposes, like two-factor authentication, and using them for its ad tracking systems, known as tailored audiences and partner audiences. Twitter claims this was a, quote, unintentional and inadvertent mistake, but whether this was avarice or incompetence on Twitter's part, the result confirms some users' worst fears, that taking advantage of a bread-and-butter security measure could expose them to privacy violations. Twitter's abuse of phone numbers for ad tracking threatens to undermine people's trust in the critical protections that two-factor authentication offers. How did your 2FA phone number end up in Twitter's ad tracking systems? Here's how it works. Two-factor authentication, 2FA, lets you log in or authenticate your identity with another piece of information or factor in addition to your password. It sometimes goes by different names on different platforms. Twitter calls it login verification. There are many different types of 2FA. SMS-based 2FA involves receiving a text with a code that you enter along with your password when you log in. Since it relies on SMS text messages, this type of 2FA requires a phone number. Other types of 2FA, like authenticator apps and hardware tokens, do not require a phone number to work. No matter what type of 2FA you choose, however, Twitter makes you hand over your phone number anyway. Twitter now also requires a phone number for new accounts. 
and that pushes users who need 2FA security the most into an unnecessary and painful choice between giving up an important security feature or surrendering part of their privacy. Uh, in this case, security phone numbers and email addresses get swept into two of Twitter's ad systems, tailored audiences, a tool to let an advertiser target Twitter users based on their marketing list, and partner audiences, which lets an advertiser target users based on other advertisers' marketing lists. Twitter claims the error, that's in quotes, occurred in matching people on Twitter to those marketing lists based on phone numbers or emails they provided for, quote, safety and security purposes. Twitter doesn't say what they mean by, quote, safety and security purposes, but it is not necessarily limited to 2FA. In addition to 2FA information, it could potentially include the phone number you get, you have to provide to unlock your account if Twitter has incorrectly marked it as a bot. Since Twitter forces many people into providing such a phone number to regain access to their account, it would be particularly pernicious if Twitter was using phone numbers gathered from that system for advertising. Uh, just to take a second, Den Libertarian in the chat says, uh, what's weird is that even though the chaos of the Democratic Party, I see no change. People just go further down the wormhole of my team is still better, regardless of any evidence. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the, that's, it's a cult. And it's all a cult. And, and you, you, once you see party allegiance through the lens of cult-like behavior, it, it makes perfect sense. It makes absolutely perfect sense. Um, and I know that you do, and, and, and others who listen to the show do. It's just to make that point. It's, it's. It's all cult-like behavior. Um, uh, to the story, I'm just going to read these next two. Uh, these Actually, uh, here, I'll skip one section. From the story, what we don't know. Twitter's post downplays the problem, leaving out numbers about the scope of the harm and details about who was affected and for how long. For instance, if Twitter locked you out of your account and required that you add a phone number to get back in, was your phone number misused for advertising? If Twitter required you to add a phone number when you signed up for any spam purposes, was your phone number misused? When an email address considered fair, uh, when any is an email address considered fair game for ad targeting, and when is it not? Twitter claims it quote cannot say with certainty how many people were impacted by this. Uh, that may be true if they're trying to parse finely who actually received an ad, but that's an excessively narrow view of quote impact. Every user, every user who, whose phone number was included in this inappropriate targeting should be considered impacted, and Twitter should disclose that number. What's next? Twitter needs to come clean about exactly what happened, when, and to how many people. It needs to explain what processes it's putting in place to ensure this doesn't happen again, and it needs to implement 2FA methods that do not require giving Twitter your phone number. Um, yeah, this is... We have this happening uh, from Xerxes. That number may still be very difficult to determine. Yeah, if they were all getting if they were all getting folded into the same database, it it could be almost impossible to determine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's from my understanding, this was all going into the same or it, to take what Twitter said about how this happened to its logical extent and what I think is probably true, this was all just getting kept in the same database, tied to the same identities and things and and I think it would be probably fair to say anybody who gave their phone number for at least 2FA, if not more, would have fallen into this bucket. I'm, I would be surprised if, if, this, if this did happen the way that they say. Logically, I would be surprised if there were any delineation between a person who gave their phone number to Twitter for 2FA and a person who was affected by this. I would be shocked if that's, if that's two different numbers. Um, 
Yeah, this is this is just more of the same, frankly, from these kinds of companies. Twitter, Facebook, all of them. They all behave the exact same way. Um, I wish a lot of the time I didn't have to use Twitter. I, I do use... I, I have fun on it. I like the people that I know on there. Um, seriously, yeah, it depends on what kinds of metrics they keep. Yeah. Uh, Den Libertarian, sidebar, go collect your $358 from the Yahoo data breach. Ooh, I could say yes to $358. Uh, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, I may or may not be on that list. I've never used a Yahoo service in my life. Um, all right. Uh, another story. This, uh, also from Reason, written by Zuri Davis. This, here we go. I need a sounder for this. I need a, uh, here. I don't know what to... I'll just drop a couple on it. I'll drop a couple on this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. How dare you! This, from the Fort Worth Police Chief. Yes, yes, yes. From reason, Fort Worth Police Chief explains why Atlanta Jefferson's welfare check turned deadly. Published on the 15th, that's today. Fort Worth Police Chief Edwin Krauss provided more details on Tuesday following the officer-involved shooting of Atlanta... Uh, I pronounced that wrong. Atanya? Atanya? Atanya Jefferson? I don't even know. Over the weekend, a concerned neighbor called a non-emergency line out of concern for Jefferson's house doors being open and lights turned on. Aaron Dean was one of the responding officers who conducted a welfare check at the home. Body camera footage shows the officers quietly circling the home before approaching a window. Upon seeing Jefferson inside, Dean shouts, Put your hands up, show me your hands. He then shoots inside the window. At no point did Dean introduce himself as law enforcement. Uh, that's a big problem. Um, he also gave no time between saying, Put your hands up, show me your hands, and then shooting. And saying that through a window. So, fuck this up on every possible level. Jefferson later died from her injuries. Dean resigned before he could be fired from the department. During a Tuesday press... Uh, but not before he was put on paid administrative leave. Just, <laughs> by the way. During a Tuesday press conference, Krauss stated, there's absolutely no excuse for this incident. Uh, see you later, Den. Uh, Krauss was asked to explain how a simple welfare, welfare check turned into a deadly incident between the time of the neighbor's concerned call and the time officers arrived at the house. Dispatch apparently relayed to officers that they'd be responding to an open structure call, which Krauss explained means officers had more discretion to respond as they see fit, instead of the more constrained welfare check. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram gives more context. Though the department continues to note that officers thought they were responding to an open structure call, a police call sheet reportedly showed that the call was labeled a burglary. Mike Benza, a law professor at Case Western Reserve University, observed to the Star-Telegram that Officers typically respond quite differently to a burglary than to a welfare check. This can explain why neither officer was seen trying the door, as well as why they didn't identify themselves as law enforcement. When asked to explain the exact reason for the change in communication, however, Krauss was unable to provide specifics as the department was still investigating the incident. In Tuesday's conference, Krauss addressed the blurry still of a gun seen on the body camera footage. Krauss conceded that it, quote, makes sense that Jefferson would have a gun if she thought that a stranger was standing in her yard. When asked if Dean felt threatened by a gun, Krauss answered, quote, I cannot tell you what he felt. He did not give a statement. Krauss reiterated an announcement made on Monday that a team of national experts will be reviewing the police department's policies and training practices. The full press conference is available here. Uh, Krauss also confirmed that Dean was arrested on Monday evening on murder charges and booked into Tarrant County Jail. He's currently out on $200,000 bond. Um... This is very similar to the story with uh, which um, 
This is very similar to the story that we had in Dallas very recently. Uh, Geiger, uh, Amber Geiger, who was just uh, sent to jail, prison rather, for uh, a 10-year stint. Going to serve probably five of that before she's out. Um, Very, very similar. Oh, God. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of these fucking cops murdering people. Absolutely sick of it. Do not call the cops for a welfare check. Call a friend. Do not call the fucking cops. It's too, it's, it's, you, you just can't, no. Don't call the cops to check on me. Call a friend. Get a hold of somebody that we know. Don't, don't call the cops to check on me. Don't do that shit. Somebody's gonna get killed. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm, I don't know, all cops are bastards, that's all I have to say. I'm sure this guy feels very bad about it, but frankly, if, if, I don't feel bad for him. I don't feel bad for him. I can't feel bad for him, because he was wearing the uniform. I, I can't. I don't have it in me to feel bad for somebody who's wearing a magic blue suit with a magic shiny star on it. I can't, I cannot find it in my heart to feel bad for someone like that. You chose, you chose to be part of the monopoly on force. You chose to wield the force of the state against your neighbor. You chose that. So you don't get to boo-hoo about it when it, when you had, when you used it, when you used that force. You signed up to use it. At bottom, that's what this is. And I can't feel bad for somebody like that. I can't. Another story from the EFF. This is uh, something that people have been pushing for for a long time. To get the governor to sign uh, AB 1215. This written by Matthew uh, Gariglia. Uh, published on October 9th, 2019. Victory, California governor signs AB 1215. California's Governor Gavin Newsom has officially signed a bill that puts a moratorium on law enforcement's use of facial recognition for three years. Under Assemblymember Phil Tang's bill, AB 1215, police departments and law enforcement agencies across the state of California will have until January 1, 2020 to end any existing use of face recognition on body-worn cameras. Three years without police use of this invasive technology means three years without a particularly pernicious and harmful technology on the streets and it has the potential to facilitate better relationships between police officers and the communities they serve. As EFF's Associate Director on Community Organizing, Nathan Sheard told the California Assembly, using face recognition technology, quote, in connection with police body cameras would force Californians to decide between actively avoiding interaction and cooperation with law enforcement or having their images collected, analyzed, and stored as perpetual candidates for suspicion. This moratorium brings to the entire state the privacy that some cities in California have already won. In May 2019, San Francisco became the first city in the country to ban police use of face recognition technology and was, a la- and was followed in June by Oakland. Because AB 1215 will end on January 1, uh, 2023, we are encouraging communities across the state to advocate for face recognition bans in your own cities and towns. Take this opportunity to advocate uh, for the end of the harmful technology in your own neighborhoods. Congratulations to all the members of the coalition and the California residents who made their voices heard on this bill. You helped make this happen. So, California, uh, I'm surprised that it was California that did this, but facial recognition not going to be in police body cams, supposedly, probably, maybe. It would be illegal for it to be there. (laughs) Um, I I seriously doubt that there's not going to be some way around this. They're not allowed to be there, so there you go. It's 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 a moral victory, if nothing else. We have a story about the fucking gamers. Fucking gamers. Riot urges League of Legends pros to keep quiet on sensitive issues. This follows uh, Blizzard stripping a Hearthstone uh, Grand Grandmasters player 
of his title and winnings and banning him for a year. I heard, though I haven't checked this out for myself, that they actually rolled that back. They gave him back his winnings, and they uh, only banned him from play for six months. Um, this was when, uh, in, a, in a Hearthstone tournament, an official Blizzard Hearthstone tournament, uh, he won a game. Uh, Blitzchung was his, is his screen name. He won a game. And then he said, uh, he said something like, support Hong Kong, the revolution of our age. Uh, and Blizzard said, nope, you don't get to say things like that. 5% of us belongs to China. And also, we're trying to, Activision's trying to get a Call of Duty mobile game launched in China. And also, uh, also Diablo, the Diablo mobile game is aimed at China. Uh, you're not allowed to make China mad, so you don't get to say things like that. I understand their interest in it. I do understand their interest in it. Uh, I do think stripping a guy of his title and taking away all his money and uh, his um, and banning him from play for a year is a bit harsh. But like I said, they I heard that they uh, have rolled that back. I haven't checked that up myself. Uh, I might do that after the show and drop it in the show notes if they have. But Riot Games, who makes League of Legends, um, it's one of the most played games currently like it's up there with like it's up there with Fortnite. it's not quite the same level but it's it's a massive massive game riot urges league of legends pros to keep quiet on sensitive issues written by john fingus uh for engadget published on the 11th riot is trying to keep its hands clean after blizzard banned a pro player for supporting the hong kong protests on camera the league of legends developers esports head john needham has issued a statement saying that Riot has, quote, reminded pro players and hosts to avoid discussing, quote, sensitive issues during broadcasts, including politics and religion. It argued that personal views should stay, quote, separate, as there was no way they could be, quote, fairly represented in the space of a game tournament. There's not enough room for the patience and subtleties these subjects require, the studio said. The company further argued that statements uh, on its platforms could, quote, escalate already tense situations, putting fans and Riot staff in danger. The position isn't likely to assuage critics. People, including U.S. senators, have already accused Blizzard of caving in to Chinese censorship in order to avoid angering the Communist Party and losing business. Uh, oh, Ixie, there you are, my man. Uh, in the chat, Ixie just dropped a link to a story on Blizzard reducing Blitz's punishment, so I will be putting that link in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Ixie. Um, uh, assuage critics. Lose business. Riot's policy won't do anything to allay suspicions. It's doing the same. This isn't helped by Riot's Chinese ownership. While Tencent has stakes in a number of companies, including Activision Blizzard and political speech defender Epic Games, it has a complete ownership of Riot. In theory, Tencent might feel pressured to silence mentions of Hong Kong's protests lest it face retaliation at home. There's a risk of a backlash as a result. Blizzard faced an almost immediate uproar over its ban, both online and among its own employees. Riot may not have banned anyone as of this writing, but gamers might see it as a matter of time and object in a similar fashion. I do want to open up this story as well. Free Speech Defender, uh, they hyperlinked Free Speech Defender Epic. Um, I can't remember. What's the CEO of Epic's name? It should be right here near the top if you wrote your story right, guys. Um, and I don't see it. But in any case, uh, the CEO of Epic... Uh, who makes Fortnite and the Unreal Engine and other games as well? They uh, he came out and he said, "No, nah, we're not gonna not while I'm a CEO and have a controlling interest in the company. No, 
we're not going to be doing things like this. Not at all. And uh, Inside Gaming Daily, this is the news show, the gaming news show that uh, belongs, that is uh, run by Rooster Teeth and is controlled by Funhouse primarily. I should say it's run by Funhouse, the Funhouse crew, uh, Lawrence, and some of the people from Rooster Teeth as well. And Rooster Teeth is the controlling, you know, company that runs Inside Gaming Daily. Anyway, it's a good news show, good gaming news show. Um, Lawrence Sontag asked the question, uh, would this hold true if somebody on a stream or something like that threw on a MAGA hat? Like, would that, would you still be saying that? Um... And I think it's an interesting question to ask. Uh, but in any case, this from that story, also published on the 9th, Epic says it won't ban players for political speech. Uh, Epic is using Blizzard's ban on Hong Kong protest supporter to tout its own stance on political speech. The developer told The Verge in a statement that, quote, it wouldn't ban or punish a Fortnite player or creator simply for expressing, quote, views on politics and human rights. Fortnite World Cup players shouldn't worry about losing their winnings for using their on-camera time as a pulpit. Whether or not this merits praise is another matter. It really just announced that it's doing what many people hope it would do, and it would be more surprising if the company joins Blizzard Chorus. Joined Blizzard's Chorus. So I thought that was interesting as well. Good guy Epic right now, which is strange in the gaming world. Um, everybody's very mad at Epic over the way they handle their store, but that's all the gaming news that I have. So let's do this again. <sighs> Fucking gamers. This from thefire.org. Published on October 11th. Author's appearance at Georgia Southern University canceled after students burn and shred books. Fire, that's the Foundation for Individual Rights and, Edu Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Uh, Thefire.org. Written by uh, Adam Steinbaugh. Uh, Steinbach, Steinbaugh? I, don't, I never know how to say that. On Wednesday, author Janine Capocruzet uh, Capo spoke at Georgia Southern University where first-year students were reading her novel Make Your Home Among Strangers, a novel. Cruz's discussion about her award-winning novel, which involves themes of race and class, was, to put it mildly, not well-received by some students who objected to Cruz's, quote, racism towards white people. What was said during the lecture was not entirely clear. The student newspaper, the George Ann, reported via Twitter that, quote, the link that had the full video of Cruz's lecture has been taken down. Cruz's statement on the matter explained that she had been asked to give a talk, quote, give a talk on issues concerning diversity and the college experience, the Georgian's write-up of the event recounted part of the question-and-answer portion of Cruz's appearance. Quote, I noticed that you made a lot of generalizations about the majority of white people being privileged, one respondent said in the microphone. What makes you believe that it's okay to come to a college campus like this when we're supposed to be promoting diversity on this campus, which is uh, what we're taught? Uh, I don't understand what the purpose of this was. Cruzan immediately responded to the student with audible reactions from the audience. Quote, I came here because I was invited and I talked about white privilege because it's a real thing that you are actually benefiting from right now and even asking this question, Cruzet said. Quote, what's so heartbreaking for me and what's so difficult in this moment right now is to literally have read a talk about this exact moment happening and it's happening again. Uh, that, is why a, that is why a different experience, the white experience, is centered in this talk. After Cruzet's response, more questions regarding the novel and Cruzet's dealing with being a minority in America were asked and Cruzet responded politely. Um, yeah, if you can't handle being questioned by somebody based on their race, you might be a racist. Just saying. If you can't handle being questioned, you probably have a problem. Other students reportedly walked out. One student told BuzzFeed News at, that after the talk, some 20 to 30 students gathered around a fire pit to burn copies of the novel. 
Students tweeted photos of burning or shredding books at Crusoe. Uh, Video posted by one student depicts students burning at least one book on a park-style grill on campus. Uh, I'm not going to read anymore. This, this is this is interesting, but I want to get to what we all know is coming. But I'm I'm. It, what's interesting about you're, you're starting to see it. What people have said was going to happen forever, which is that if you tell a group of people that they are evil. If you tell a group of people that they are the original sin in your religion, your intersectional religion, and you tell people that they are the original sin, they're gonna get mad. I don't know who wouldn't see this coming. Now, to be clear, I do not, and would not, support book burning. Xerxes says, fuck you, bitch, I am evil. <laughs> uh, slash same, though. Um... <laughs> Um, I do not and will never support book burners, man. Uh, if you want, if you want to prove to me that you're a piece of shit, burn a book, especially to make a political statement. Fuck you. Fuck you in your ass, book burners. At the same time, I understand this reaction. Get this reaction. There's a lot of people who have been saying, quit demonizing the whites. Quit demonizing the whites. Quit doing it. You're not going to like the response. And here we have one small part of the response. Frankly, the response was Trump to begin with. That's how you get a guy like Trump elected. In any case, oh, I think we all know what time it is. Credits will do fine. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who? Do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Superior, Executive, Producer, Saw You 77, and Xerxes. And I trust Producers Absurdist Fool and Max Ogburn. You, 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 you glorious motherfuckers. I love looking every week at this list of subscribers and seeing all your names there. Um, if you would like to have your name there as well, you can do that. Roguefile.com slash donate, or you can do that uh, through AIR, Alternative Internet Radio, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O. Uh, and there's, um, there are many, many ways for you to donate. You can join the Discord in those places as well. Um, as I've said every week thus far, and I've just been too busy to do it, and I'm going to do it at some point, and I do not know when, I will be taking down the merch store and moving it somewhere else. Uh, any merch store that I end up picking is not going to have the, the range of items available. So if you think there's a cool thing on the Cafe Press store, like I got a, I got a flask. If you think there's a cool thing on there, pull it down, um, because that's going to be going away uh, relatively soon. Like I said before, I'm probably not going to see any money for it. Uh, I only get 10% of what's on the Cafe Press store, and I'm not going to ask Cafe Press to send me a check for like a few bucks, which is basically what I would get as soon as I leave. So... I'm probably never going to see any of it. I just know that there's some cool items there, and if you're interested in any of that, Go pull that stuff down. Um, let's uh, let's let's read off these names again. We have Superior Executive Producers Xerxes and Saw You Seventy Seven, and Producers Absurdist Fool and Max Ogburn. You can interact with them in the uh, in the Discord as well. They're there. Um, I want to thank you 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 for so much. Uh, you are all uh, gods amongst men, wolves amongst ravens, diamonds in the rough, and uh, bright bright spots on this dark dark place that we all call the internet. Thank you so very much for your support. Arch, do you know? You know, you know, you know? Uh, 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 u
Jake in the chat, you're a flask kind of guy. I am a flask kind of guy. I like a flask. I like a good flask. Um, I was drinking out of a flask at Childerberg. <laughs> um, now for the for this last chunk of the show, probably not going to be too long, but I'm I want to talk about this. So there was a uh, there was a Twitter thread not long ago, written by someone who was saying that that they had a picture and everything else. They they were talking about their brother saw a guy on a flight who was wearing a shirt that said uh, "Rope Tree Journalist, Some Assembly Required." Being the uh, Michael Malician red-pilled individual that I am, know that journalists are liars. Having gone to J school, I know that journalists are liars. My minor is in journalism. I've gone to the school that they go to, to the schools that they go to. It's, it's bullshit. Journalism is all opinion writing. Um, and it always has been. The Age of Yellow journalism never ended. We learn about it in history books, but it's always been the case, and it always will be. But uh, written by Robbie Sove on Reason, Democrats want to make it a federal crime to threaten journalists. Senator Richard Blumenthal would give journalists special federal protections that they don't need. Following reports that a violent parody video depicting President Trump murdering a bunch of journalists was shown at a pro-Trump conference over the weekend, Democrats are calling on Congress to make it a federal crime to threaten or attack members of the media. Now, that video that was shown, when I first heard about it, it was pretty much straight from the story. The story neglected to mention that the video was a photoshopped version of the... Well, it probably wasn't photoshopped. It was probably After Effects or Premiere. But it was a shopped version of the church scene from the first Kingsman movie. So it was Trump killing a bunch of, you know, people who had their heads shopped onto the thing. It was a joke. If you've seen the first Kingsman movie, you know that's one of the funniest scenes in the film. It's funny because it's ultra-violent. It's shocking. And it's also funny because it's, it's, it's shot really well, and it looks great, and it's incredibly fun and funny. And they just used that and shopped the pictures of, of the journalists and shit onto the whatever. Like, it, it was a joke. It's from Kingsman. In any case, from the story, to that end, they're re revisiting the Journalist Prese Protection Act, which was announced last year. Quote, I offered this bill last session before any of these videos surfaced, said Richard Blumenthal uh, in a recent interview. It's a priority for me to protect news-gathering operations, no matter what their form. Blumenthal explained that the proposed bill would address, quote, the continuing threat of physical violence, whether by guns or other means, against members of the press. His bill is co-sponsored by Senator Bob Mendez and Representative Eric Swalwell <laughs> has sponsored the House version. The Journalist Protection Act is a bad idea for a number of reasons. First... It should be noted that the anti-media sentiment expressed in the Trump parody video is protected speech. It's violent, offensive, but clearly satire. Not a true threat of violence against anyone. The person who digitally transformed the infamous church shootout scene from Kingsman the Secret Service into a Trumpian battle royale is protected by the First Amendment. Any attempt to criminalize such expression would be unlikely to survive judicial scrutiny. The House version of the bill doesn't actually attempt to criminalize mere threats. Instead, it establishes, quote, journalists as a protected class and defines the category very broadly as, quote, anyone engaged in regular gathering, preparation, collection, photographing, recording, writing, editing, reporting, or publishing concerning a uh, local, national, or international event or other matter of public interest. Causing bodily injury to a journalist carries a penalty of three to six years in prison. Journalists don't need a new law to protect them from violence, though. Needless to say, it's already illegal to cause bodily injury to another person. At best, creating an additional law at the federal level is pointless. In reality, such a law could have the effect of infringing upon the civil liberties of people accused of violence. When something is criminalized at both the state and federal level or criminalized on several different grounds, prosecutors have additional opportunities to bring charges. 
In practice, additional charges often give defendants little option but to plead guilty in exchange for a deal. The authorities simply have too many chances to convict them. For example, so based on this, let's look. Uh, in regular gathering, preparation, collection, photographing, recording, writing, editing, reporting, or publishing concerning a local, national, or international event or other matter of public interest. I do that. This show is that. Uh, collection, uh, recording, editing, publishing, gathering, uh, concerning local, national, or international events. That's the show. So if this were to be law, someone who assaults me in the street, the prosecutor could theoretically hang a charge on them of assaulting a journalist, a protected class, very special. So in order to keep this down, what would they have to do? Well, well you, first of all, you want to keep this down. You don't, first of all, you don't want to legitimize me as a journalist if you're the government. You absolutely do not want to do that. But secondly, you, you don't want to have your, frankly, you don't want to have that on your caseload everywhere. So what do you do to keep it down? Well, you start licensing journalists. You start giving out journalist licenses. Or you got your journalism license. And then you can start giving them, you know, journalists special powers, special privileges, special rights to speech that the rest of us don't have. Using the argument, of course, that the First Amendment protects a free press free expression being a different thing. So if you define press differently, well, there you go. Maybe you have special privileges. I'm not going to read the rest of this story, but I think you see what this is about. I want to make a point about this. So there's a, there's a Supreme Court case that everybody kind of calls back to. I'll post the, uh, the text of the, uh, of the opinion uh, from Cornell Law, and I will also post the, what, it, what it led to. This case is called Brandenburg v. Ohio. and this is a case in which a Ku Klux Klan leader was convicted under Ohio criminal syndicalism statute for advocating uh, the duty, necessity, or propriety of a crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform and for voluntarily assembling uh, with any society group or assemblage of persons formed to teach or advocate the doctrines of criminal syndicalism. Uh, this, of course, was an appeal by this Ku Klux Klan leader, and he won on appeal. And here is what we get from the opinion of that appeal. It is called the Brandenburg Test. And from Cornell Law, the Brandenburg Test was established in Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969 to, to determine when inflammatory speech intending to advocate illegal action can be restricted. In the, in the case, a KKK leader gave a speech at a rally to his fellow Klansmen. And after listing a number of derogatory racial slurs, he then said that, quote, it's possible that there might have to be some revengeance taken. The test determined that the government may prohibit speech advocating the use of force or crime if the speech satisfies both, both elements of the two-part test. One, the speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And two, the speech is likely to incite or produce such action. Now, I do want to do this. I said earlier that Brandenburg won on appeal. I actually don't know that for sure. And there were also two charges, so I can't remember. Um, but here we go. There are applications of the Brandenburg test. The Supreme Court in Hess v. Indiana, 1973, applied the Brandenburg test to a case in which Hess, an Indiana University protester, said, we'll take the f to the fucking street again, or later. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that Hess's profanity was protected under the Brandenburg test as the speech, quote, amounted to nothing more than advocacy of illegal action at some indefinite future time. 
The court concluded that, quote, since there was no evidence or rational inference from the import of the language that his words were intended to produce and likely to produce imminent disorder, those words would not be punished by the state on the grounds that they had a tendency to lead to violence. In NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware, uh, 1982, Charles Evers threatened violence against those who refused to boycott white businesses. The Supreme Court applied Brandenburg and found that the speech was protected. Quote, Strong and effective extemporaneous rhetoric cannot be nicely channeled in uh, purely dulcet phrases. An advocate must be free to stimulate his audience with spontaneous and emotional appeals for unity and action in a common cause. When such appeals do not incite lawless action, they must be regarded as protected speech. So, there is a difference between making some undefined threat, which is protected, and making a true threat which is not protected, especially if your undefined threat threatens a class like journalist or politician, for example. Such an undefined threat is protected under Brandenburg. And I think a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know, and I've, I've said this on the show before, the, uh, the idea uh, that shouting fire in a crowded theater would not be protected speech. This idea comes from an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, he's a Supreme Court justice, with regard to an individual, Shankly his name was, but I can't remember for sure anymore, uh, an individual protesting the draft during World War I. That was what was compared to shouting fire in a crowded theater. So this idea, this, re- this idea of restricting speech, especially angry, uh, well, let's, let's see what, how this was described, because I do love this description. Strong and effective extemporaneous rhetoric. The idea that, that of criminalizing that is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And attempting to do so by citing Oliver Wendell Holmes shouting fire in a crowded theater, attempting to justify curtailing the speech of your neighbor by citing a man who was describing protesting the fucking draft puts you, I think very plainly, on the wrong fucking team. And we hear this all the time. We see it all the time on Twitter. We see it everywhere. Speech absolutely must be curtailed. You're not allowed to shout fire in a crowded theater. Well, do you know where that fucking comes from? Do you know why it's bullshit? Why it's always been bullshit? Do you know the history? Because you're saying it. You're saying it as though it's true, as though it has merit. It's not, and it doesn't. That's all I had for this episode of the show. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, this is going to be uploaded relatively soon. I have so much homework to do. Oh, I don't want to. Oh, what do I leave you with? I want to leave you with something. I want to leave you with... Well, just, let's just leave you with this. I'm kind of retarded. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week. A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week.
This has been an Alternative Internet Radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.